Welcome back to another episode of the Jaws Obsession, where we are always here to share with you, prove to you, convince you, or remind you that Jaws is the greatest movie of all time. Thank you for returning. And this episode is going to be, we have a couple of developments here to talk about in the Jaws Obsession and the expanded Jaws universe. Before we get to uh, a surprise announcement that we will have in this episode, I wanted to tie up some thoughts that I had that were left over from episode 35, Tie Me a Sheepshank. I received numerous compliments uh, regarding the Quint and Hooper father and son dynamic that was developed through episode 35 with Tie Me a Sheepshank. That information that dynamic was developed through the process of the writing of the book of Quint in that, as we know, and this is not going to be a spoiler, as we as we know, if, any was, if anyone has watched the trailer to uh, the book of Quint, uh, you can see the trailer at our website at jawsob.com and uh, over at the book of Quint page there. The book of Quint features a prologue, and in the prologue, we do get to experience a 78-year-old Matt Hooper recalling Quint. This is going to be the first time we actually get to hear from Matt Hooper since the end of Jaws, since he's swimming away in nineteen in July of 1974 at the end of Jaws. We get to hear his thoughts on what Quint meant to him, and realistically, as the adrenaline as the adrenaline wore away, and but the post-traumatic stress disorder that Hooper experienced in the water with the shark, that was a very traumatic experience. How did that affect him? And how did that affect him later in life, especially as he's recalling the events of Jaws? One of the little elements that we are going to learn is that Matt Hooper lost his father in his teenage years. Therefore, with that little piece of information, that changes the whole dynamic of the movie Jaws on how you watch 
Hooper and Quint's relationship from the very first meeting in the fishing shack in Quint's shark and shack. Hooper is overly aggressive and wanting to gain the approval of Quint. And that leads into the the, the different knot, the, the variation of the sheep shank. So if anyone hasn't listened to that episode, episode 35, please go ahead and listen to that. This is going to be a small continuation, just half of this episode. I'm going to continue this into episode 36 because uh, there were some thoughts that I had after I did that episode. I went back and I watched Jaws because this is a, a relatively new development is the prologue is the last thing I'm writing to the book of Quint. The book of Quint is all done. The 54 chapters are done. Uh, they are completed. The, the prologue is what I wanted to do that because I wanted to write that last. And so I could actually look back on the story as Matt Hooper is looking back on the story and commenting on what happened. So now that I've reached that understanding with that little element that we we can now watch Jaws at, if Matt Hooper, if we know that Matt Hooper lost his father at, an, at his, in his teenage years and Quint lost his father in his teenage years, that Quint was obviously seeing himself in Matt Hooper, the young aggressive sailor at 28, 29 years old. And we've already done that. We, we proved in the last episode that of what Matt Hooper's age and that Quint was the same age as Matt Hooper was in Jaws. He was the same age during the sinking of the Indianapolis. There's a lot of layers that are crossing here. So what I did was I went back and I rewatched Jaws. And now it takes on a whole new uh, tone. There is another layer that's going on here. Most specifically is, and where I'm at right now, I'm at the 38th minute of Jaws. Martin Brody is at the dinner table with his son, Sean Brody. The heartwarming scene that we all love is where little Sean Brody is mimicking his father, okay, doing all the different, doing, and he's going back and forth with whatever uh, his dad's doing, he's doing. So what that scene now is doing is that's foreshadowing the father-son dynamic that Quint and Hooper are going to have later on, okay? So now we have to, we can actually see the scene that we can go, wow, okay, this is now foreshadowing to where now when we see Hooper trying to mimic Quint in his aggressiveness, in his tone, or trying to do things that Quint is doing, can we now see that father-son dynamic? Now remember, this isn't, Hooper is not Quint's son, but there is a father-son dynamic where Hooper is, is seeing Quint as the extension of the father that he lost at an earlier age. And so we are seeing Hooper actually go back into a, almost a childhood state and a teenage state throughout the second half of Jaws. And that's what's so interesting here. So what I did was I rewatched Jaws and immediately the first thing I saw was, okay, I'm going to rewatch Jaws with this knowledge that Hooper lost his father early age. Let's see how this plays out. Now, knowing that this is coming up, now all of a sudden, the scene with Martin Brody and his son, Sean Brody, where he's mimicking his father, that takes on a whole new meaning because now that's foreshadowing to what's coming up ahead later in the movie. I thought that's very interesting. There's one other thing I wanted to play here. When I was 12 years old, my father got me this boat and I went fishing off of Cape Cod and I hooked a scup and as I was reeling it in, I hooked a four and a half foot baby thresher shark. So that was very telling right there. When I was 12 years old, my father got me this boat and I went fishing off of Cape Cod. When I was 12 years old, my father got me this boat and I went fishing off of Cape Cod. So Matt Hooper is now revealing that his father got him a boat. So his father was some sort of nautical savvy person. We don't know the extent of it, but we know that the son, the father passed off his love for boating and sailing and nautical maritime knowledge to his son, the father did to Matt Hooper. So at 12 years old, his father got him this boat. So let's say if Matt Hooper were to lose his father at 16 years old, now he sees that boating 
and boating and being on the water is an extension of him kind of holding on to the memory of his father. Now we're going to go through the movie, and I just wanted to highlight a series of scenes where uh, Matt Hooper now is doing the Sean Brody mimicking Quint and doing what Quint does. So let's go through the movie here. We, we've already did a little bit of the, we already did the um, Quint's Shark and Shack scene. One thing to note is that when Hooper first walks in, he has a great big smile on his face as he's looking around, and he's like a kid walking into a KB toy store. So he's looking around, and he is already into that childhood state, the bewilderment of it all. And so we we kind of already see Matt Hooper slowly going into this this younger Matt Hooper dynamic, which is really interesting. Uh, the performance by Richard Dreyfus is exceptional here. Now, remember, this is not all intentional. This is a, a lot of this stuff we don't. We know that through the making of Jaws, a lot of these lines were ad libbed. A lot of these uh, scenes were made up on the spot. But that's the beauty of Jaws: is that the Jaws was making itself, it was molding itself, and it is still being made in a way. When we have a prequel like the Book of Quint, it now helps Jaws to even mold itself more. It, it already is the greatest movie of all time, but this is how it can be even greater that this movie is so great. It, it molds itself over time with the amount of knowledge that we actually extract from the movie. And, and so what we're going to do now is we're going to skip over to July 7th, Monday, 1974, when they're first on the water. So that's after the dissolve, after they leave port, they dissolve. That indicates a passage of time. And if you want to know where I'm getting these dates, you go back and listen to the Jaws episode, uh, Jaws Obsession episode 16. That was the Jaws timeline episode. That's where we solidified all these dates. So now Brody's laying down the chum markers uh, on July 7th, 1974, on Monday. Nowadays, these kids, they take out everything. Radar, sonar, electric toothbrushes. <laughs> so one hour and 13 minutes, 12 seconds into the movie, we have Quint is sitting in his fighting chair with a line out over uh, waiting for with a with a bait out cast out. And Hooper is using a device that he's holding a line off the side of the orca. So Hooper could be doing this anywhere on the boat. But what he's doing is he's trying to show Quint he's more than just ballast, that he's actually got a function on the boat, too. And so he's actually creeping up into Quint's view and trying to almost mimic Quint, saying, hey, you got your business, I have my business. So once again, keep in mind the Martin Brody, Sean Brody thing is going on here. And what, what Quint does is he kind of ignores that. He kind of d dismisses it and says they bring out everything, radar, sonar, electric toothbrushes, and he kind of laughs. And Hooper's kind of shaking his head because he's not getting that validation. He's not getting that approval from um, from this this father-like figure, this elder statesman of the high seas. So that's one of the first things I noticed is that Hooper's trying to, he's trying to show Quint that he's also functional. The very next one is very obvious is when, is the beer can scene. So uh, Quint downs the beer, crushes it in his hand, and then Hooper downs his coffee or his water, whatever he has, and he crushes the styrofoam cup. This is a direct, this is exactly the younger kid mimicking the older guy. So uh, it's a great scene. It's funny. It was, we do know it was, it was ad lib. This is not in the screenplay, but when you view all this together with just a little bit of knowledge, these do, these scenes do take on a whole new meaning. So the, the father son dynamic is actually working here. Now let's see how it plays on because this doesn't just affect Hooper. This also affects Quint later on as the movie progresses. Martin, this is compressed air. Well, what the hell kind of a knot was that? You pulled the wrong one. 
You screw around with these tanks and they're going to blow up. So now what we have right here is we have Hooper being overly aggressive with the chief, with Martin Brody. Now, this is his buddy, right? I mean, we never saw Hooper talk like this to Chief Brody. But now this is one day after Hooper was uh, when Quint got overly exaggerated and blew up on Hooper. Knows the zinc oxide and blistics is in the kit. Son of a bitch! Now we have Hooper mimicking Quint doing the same thing to Martin. And that is right behind, almost trying to show Quint, I can be as tough and direct as you. So the, it, it keeps going, it keeps playing. And this is a beautiful thing about it because now Quint's starting to take note of, of Hooper at this point, but he's still, he's always going to shy on Martin Brody's side because why? Because Brody is closer to Quint's age. Brody is in his mid forties. We do know Quint is about 58 years old. Quint is 58 years old at this time. So Brody is in his mid 40s and Hooper is complete is 30 years younger than Quint. So Hooper is the younger generation at this point. I think that's very interesting that in this one sequence we do have one, two, three elements of Hooper trying to mimic Quint. Don't you tell me my business again. You get back on the bridge. That doesn't prove a damn thing. Well it proves one thing, Mr. Hooper. Proves that you wealthy college boys don't have the education enough to admit when you're wrong. Okay, and as we know, this scene, the famous scene here where uh, Quint storms past Hooper and Hooper uh, makes faces, some gestures, and he and he goes up the ladder to the flying bridge of the Orca, uh, grumbling to himself. We're seeing Hooper resemble a teenager being sent to his room, uh, being put in his place, being told he's wrong, and uh, I don't want to hear any more about it. And Hooper is gone right back to 16-year-old Matt Hooper. I mean, it's, it's unbelievable. This is a far, this is a huge leap from the reserved and formal dinner table Hooper from earlier in the movie. So it's clear right now that the father-son dynamic of Quint and Hooper is now in full swing. We cannot deny it here, but we're going to continue watching this movie with this new foresight. So let's keep going here. Coming. Hooper, get clear of the barrel. The famous barrel and Hooper's strobe scene that will take that that if you if you want to learn more about that we'll, we can go right back to episode two of the Jaws Obsession where we went into uh, Hooper's strobe light, but we don't have to go into that. But what we can see now here is that this is also another example of Hooper trying to be like Quint, where Hooper is copying Quint and he's also attaching something to the barrel. So Quint is going to attach the barrel to the shark. Hooper's going to attach something to the barrel. So he's trying to gain Quint's approval. He's trying to gain that acceptance from Quint. He's doing the Sean Brody. He's just copying his dad. So let's keep moving on. Uh, the dissolve at the end of the barrel, the first barrel, when they lose the barrel and it turns into sunset, then it dissolves, indicates a small passage over time. So uh, we have to think that the, the, all the men kind of got to know each other a little bit more. This, this, was their, this was their second day being underway. So now we have the scar scene, the comparing of the scars at the dinner table. Now this is extremely obvious back and forth, Hooper mimicking Quint, one-upping him, trying to show him, oh, you got this scar, I got this scar. And they're just having fun. But we also see now, now we see Quint starts warming up to Mr. Hooper, of which he calls him Hoop. Hey, Hoop. You want to feel something permanent? 
You just put your hand underneath my cap. Right there, he calls him hoop. That, that would be a term of endearment for Quint to actually say hoop. And so now we've seen that the, the acceptance is now coming into play where Quint is now seeing him more like a son, like a son he never had. And that's, this, is, this, is really, this is really intricate stuff that's going on here because it's slowly progressing. They're sharing, they're drinking together, they're having fun, they're comparing scars. And now Quint obviously opens up to the both of them about the USS Indianapolis and his history. And so he's opening up to these two and Hooper is very respectful. Hooper is listening intently. Uh, we know that they have a run-in with the shark and a lot of chaos goes on. But now you dissolve to the next day. Now remember, now we have Quint opening up to Hooper, right? So now we dissolve to the next day here. And what do we have? Hey, We're... Chief! Hold it, brother! Put your left hand down. I can't. It'll only go about three inches. All of our injectors got scored from the salt water in the fuel. Yeah, the house is you can hear it. This is really interesting here, is that now we have uh, Quint and Hooper working on the Orca down below decks like a father and son leaning into the engine of an old car and working together. Hooper, the, there's two things that are of note here. Is One is Hooper is obviously following Quint. Quint's going to go down and repairs to the, ste the steering, and Hooper is going to go down and he's going to start working on the engine and the possible problems that the engine has. This is another example of Hooper following Quint. But number two, we have Quint allowing Hooper to work on his boat. So there is now a trust established with Quint after he called him Hoop. So now we have Quint allowing Hooper to just go right in and start opening up uh, valve covers and, uh, and looking at fuel in injectors. Quint would not allow just anyone to work on this boat. Quint's worked on this for many, many years, many, many years. So now we have, he's actually warmed up to Hooper and now it, it's the father and son dynamic. Now they're even closer together. So now they're even closer together working on the old boat, just like a father and son working on an old car. The next sequence that I noticed was very, very, uh, I, I saw this in a new light just recently. Just by watching this, this I learned a lot right here. Chief! The barrel is up, it's right in the stern. So the barrel comes up at the back of the orca. He's right under the king. Grab the boat hook. So Hooper goes to get the boat hook, and he tries to get the rope in. We can get close enough. I've got things on board that'll kill him. Just want to goose him up. Come on. Okay. When he runs, you drop that rope or you'll lose your hands. Now we have Quint is, he's obviously concerned for Hooper and he gives him advice. When he, if he runs, you drop that rope or you're going to lose your hands. The next part is very, very interesting, and this is the first time I've actually seen it in a different way because I always thought, well, let's get to the part. I seen fingers turn out of the knuckles. Old Seaman's home's full of them. Hey, boy, give it to me a minute. We have Quint lean over and says, hey, hey, hey boy, give it to me a minute. So he takes, so he sees what Hooper's doing, and I believe that Quint at this point realizes, no, 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 I, if, this, if this shark runs or if something happens here, I'd rather it be me. This is a young guy. He's got his whole life ahead of him. 
So Quint actually puts himself into harm's way here. And he says, here, boy, give it to me. And he starts coiling it up. And what does he do? He actually takes the hit. When that shark whips that rope around, he actually takes the hit and he takes the hand injury uh, instead of Hooper. So this was the first time that you actually see Quint almost protect Hooper in a way. There is no trying to toughen up Hooper. Now it's a sense of protection. And I think that's just fascinating in this dynamic. If you watch this simple scene in this dynamic, Quint is, is over there and he doesn't want to see Hooper get hurt. I really do. Be, I do believe that it wasn't. I always thought it was Hooper wasn't coiling fast enough or he wasn't taking the rope in fast enough. And Quint was just like, here, boy, give me it. Give it to me because you're not doing it right. No, no, no. This this was Quint protecting Hooper. And Quint was right because Quint's hand gets caught by the rope. He takes the hit instead of Hooper because he's also holding the rope that's close. He's holding the part part of the rope that's closest to the shark. So he's going to take the horsepower of the shark, whipping it out of his hand. Very interesting stuff. And as you can see, Hooper, uh, Hooper and Quint argue, and they have a difference of opinion later on when Hooper's telling Quint to lay off the orca. But what Quint's trying to do is he's trying to tire the shark out. If you go back to listen to Jaws episode, Jaws Obsession episode three, Shallow Water, we go through the entire reasoning why Quint is so heavy on the orca here. It's trying to wear that shark eyes, trying to tire it down. Now this actually saves Hooper's life. Believe it or not, this actually saves Hooper's life. I will get to this in a little bit. This is a very fascinating aspect. So they argue like a father and son do, and we do know that the orca breaks. We believe we solved that mystery about who broke the orca. You can go listen to episode 10 of the Jaws Obsession to, to f solve that mystery. Quint defers to Hooper about uh, what can you do with these things of yours. Okay, so he's going to get in the cage. He's going to go down. He's going to see if he can poison the shark. I got no spit. So what I found very interesting here is you have Hooper now in the water, chest deep in the water, looking up. And he says, I got no spit. And he looks up and it, it cuts right to Quint looking down at Hooper. Now, if you look at this father and son dynamic, Quint is feels extremely responsible at this point because he's the captain and that's his boy. That's his crew. And what he's also seen, he's also seen himself and all the other young men in the water, the Indianapolis, from the chest up, neck up. They're in the water looking up. So Quint is actually getting those recalls, those flashbacks of the Indianapolis at this point. That's why he has such a solemn, grim look in his face that he is looking at his boy right now is being put into the same position uh, at the same age, getting into the water with a shark. You can see he's troubled by this and he's got concern on his face and it cuts to Quint at that moment. It's wonderful. It's wonderful if you watched it in this dynamic. It's wonderful. Hooper goes down. We all know what happens with the cage. We also see that this is why Quint is cranking so hard and wears his arm out working to bring his boy up and bring that destroyed cage up from the water. You see the concern. You see the strain. He's working. It's not, he truly does have affection for Hooper at this point. And Hooper is not ballast. This is, I mean, that's his boy. And he is totally distraught that he let this situation, that this situation got out of his hand as he is the captain of this situation. Uh, the shark kills Quint. Brody blows the shark up. Uh, Hooper comes up from the water at the end with Martin there. And the first thing he asks about is his father figure. He just says one word, Quint. 
that's natural. You could say that's natural because it was a crew of three and he's looking for Quint. But what we're going to experience through the prologue of the book of Quint, what we're going to experience is that Hooper in later days, months, and years, he's the only one that ever got in the water with the shark. So Hooper saw firsthand the strength of this animal. But this was after the three barrels wore it down and tired it out. So Quint, by using the Quint barrel technique, trying to draw the shark into the shallows and racing that shark out of energy, that shark still tore the, tore the cage apart, but that was a tired shark that was worn down. Hooper will have realized that if Hooper just went out with no barrel technique, just went out, put the cage in, and like, I can poison the shark right now. Hooper would have been completely wiped out because if that shark had full strength, like beginning of the movie strength, like when it took Chrissy Watkins, Hooper would have been decimated. That cage would have been decimated even more. That was the tired Great White. And that's why the Great White was very sluggish. That's why it was swimming very slowly at the end. And it was able to, and that's how Martin Brody was able to get a zero in on the scuba tank because that shark was tired out. You can even see how it's hanging out on the surface. The barrels were doing their work. They were drawing the shark up and it's just happens to be that Hooper is going to be one of the only ones still alive that realizes that Quint saved a lot of lives by giving his life. And that is going to be, um, one of the things that Hooper is that will weigh on him for so long that this man had so much knowledge and he he did not get to spend more time with him and he did not get to talk to him and experience more of this father-like figure of Quint. So that's my thoughts. What do you think? You can give me an email here at jawsob2025 at gmail.com. If you watch Jaws with the father and son dynamic that was developed in episode 35, what do you think? Does this change your view of the movie? Do the performances become better? Because that's what we are trying to do here. And that's what a good prequel will do. A good prequel will enhance the movie, the original movie. So without remaking, without reissuing, without doing a whole bunch of weirdness, you actually can make the movie we all love, Jaws, even greater by having a quality prequel called The Book of Quint. With that, we're going to switch gears here. I wanted to get onto the big announcement that I have. We are going to have a little experiment the experiment is, how could two chapters to the Book of Quint affect your viewing of the movie Jaws? We have been so lucky to have a Jaws superfan, Scott Fitzgerald, who has a professional recording studio in Rochester, New York. So uh, what he did was he uh, marshaled the forces together and was able to create an audiobook version of two chapters to the Book of Quint, chapters 16 and 17. And what we are going to do is the very next episode of the Jaws Obsession, we are going to play just the audiobook of chapters 16 and 17 from the Book of Quint, this audiobook version format that was created for the Jaws Obsession here. So that's going to premiere Friday, September 2nd, this week. Okay, only one, two, three, four days from now. Friday night, we're going to premiere that episode. That's going to be episode 37. So this wonderful audiobook version of chapter 16 and 17 to the Book of Quint on Friday. Over the weekend, the homework now is, to all the listeners of the Jaws Obsession, using the knowledge that you hear in chapters 16 and 17, Rewatch Jaws 
And then on next Tuesday, Tuesday the 6th of September, I will come back on and I will dissect exactly what is revealed in these two chapters, what is, what is the major revelation, and how does that pertain to Jaws? And let's see if you can catch that. Can you catch that watching it? It's probably one of the biggest revelations that's in the movie Jaws that we never really... We are never really treated to because there's so much more there, but we don't have the tools to make it happen. In order to explain that, I wanted to bring on Scott Fitzgerald to talk a little bit more about this wonderful project, the audiobook version of chapters 16 and 17. Get out of that boat! So, Scott, thank you very much for coming on the Jaws Recession. Welcome to the show. How are you doing today? Thank you. I'm, I'm doing great, and I'm honored to be here. This is... Uh... I'm kind of fanboying here a little bit. <laughs> yeah. well, I just announced about the uh, ra- the audiobook of chapters 16 and 17 on the show. And what, what you did was what I always envisioned the book of Quint and the Jaws obsession to do was bring Jaws fans together to show Universal Studios that we would like a quality prequel to the movie Jaws. That's something that will enhance this movie, favorite, our, our favorite movie of all time. Um, and you did that. You came in and you, you saved the day. You volunteered your recording studio. And I want to thank you so much for doing that because it sounds great. And I'm sure the fans will love it. So thank you very much. Before we start, I just want to say thank you. Awesome. My, it's my pleasure. I'm, I'm honored to be a part of it. Great. The fans are going to love it. I promise everyone out there listening, fans are going to love it. So I, I wanted to bring you on the show because I had a couple questions that I wanted to get to. As you know, the Book of Quint is written for Jaws fans. It's going to bring everybody together. Mm-hmm. How did you hear about the Jaws obsession? And what were your first thoughts when you heard about the Book of Quint? You know, understanding that we all have a cautious tone these days with our favorite movies when we hear talks of prequels and sequels. Well, I worked with your sister. I've known your sister for years, and I was posting on Facebook recently about Jaws and the anniversary, and and probably the second or third time she says, "You got to listen to my brother's podcast, Jaws Obsession." The first couple of times I was like, "Yeah, okay, podcast, whatever." Um, I ra- actually ran out of an audiobook because I'm an audiobook freak, so I ran out of audiobooks. I didn't have any more Audible credits, and I was looking for something to listen to when I walked my dog. Okay. And I'm like, oh, yeah, Jaws Obsession. So I searched it up. I started listening. And the first thing I hear is the Show Me the Way to Go Home remix. And I'm like, oh, yeah, this is awesome. This is <laughs> incredible. You because you did it. You, you did it, it, it. I could tell that it came from a place of love. It came from a place of, of respect. And, and, it, and it was pure. The and show. that was the part yeah. that, I, that I liked about it. What was the first episode? Did you go right in? Did you start with the last episode? Oh, I started episode? with number one. Oh, start with number one. There you go. Yep. Okay. Yep. All I right. worked my way up and I actually got to the, I caught up to you and then uh-huh. I realized that I had ran, ran through all the episodes and I was a little bit bummed, but thankfully <laughs> I didn't have to wait too long. Well, well, that's a good sign because we're getting more content out there for you. Uh, <laughs> you're helping us do it. What was the process of the recording of these two chapters, chapter 16 and 17 of the book of Quint? How long did it take? And were there any major hurdles to cross? There weren't really uh, very many hurdles or actually any hurdles. It was it was just a matter of so Rick is the voice actor. Okay. And um it was just it was a matter of how to read the different characters, what right. the voice, you know, cuz you can kind of go one or t- one of two ways where you actually fully go on Mel Blanc in it so that you have all these different like very different voices for each character or as most audiobooks are, it's obviously the narrator doing the other characters so there's a slight variation of that voice for the characters and 
we we got we got it all recorded in about two hours and then we came in and did about an hour of re-records for for little things that we wanted to fix after right. you know we listened to it and sat on it for a couple of days and then came back and said let's let's fix this sentence and let's let's fix you know this this yep. part here but uh, really it really i think all told the recording the recording took about three hours tops and then took me about the same amount of time to edit it now in your experience is that uh was that um, efficient was that yeah too little too long no that that was good i so Usually, I kind of say that people people usually read books at around 150 to 180 words per minute. You can get a couple of chapters done in a two hour in a two hour session recording session, mm -hmm. and that's all I usually do when when we produce audiobooks here. I recommend because most of them are read by the author, and so okay. I recommend don't try to don't try to record longer than two hours. Your voice starts to get fatigued. You start to make mistakes. It starts to get hot in the booth. You know. Right, things like right. that so we, we yep. keep it at two hours but this was just the right amount of okay. content two chapters it was perfect perfect great that and, and that's what leads me to my next question here you've had obviously experience with podcasts and audiobooks through your recording studio i noticed an increasing trend in the the way the podcasting landscape is that there's um the, the serial shows where there's a narrated narrated story or a mystery and listeners return each week to see what happens uh, have become very popular. Yeah. Do you do you think that this would fall into that category if this book had to reach the audience through just the Jaws obsession? That's actually a pretty cool idea. Uh, I I would love that if if you <laughs> did it as you know next week. You know. Yes. Like one of the old serials. You like know. The old serials, right? Yeah. Like the old radio shows, right? Tune in next and, week where right. Quint says, you know, <laughs> that would be great. Uh, th that's what I kind of hope that we're, we're in talks, obviously, with a bigger name about publication and they're reviewing the manuscript. But I would hope that to see that the book of Quint goes to all forms uh, to reach the audience for their enjoyment, because some people just don't have time to read the book. Yeah. So, you know, the audio book is a big thing. So th that's all going to be up to the higher powers that be. Yeah. And and that's where we are right now. What were your thoughts on the two chapters you recorded? Does it make you excited about the book of Quint that's going to reach the campaign backers in October? Absolutely. I'm, I'm super excited. And I was really impressed with a couple of the historical points that you made there. And one of yeah. which my favorite part, and I don't know if I can how much I can give away or not. I guess. Uh, so, yeah, you could talk a little okay, bit so, about it. Yeah. So, of course, everybody knows Quint on the USS Indianapolis, and you know the story of the Indianapolis. But sure. deeper so into that story is that the captain, the skipper of the Indianapolis, McVeigh, was really a fall guy, and it yeah. was not really fair, and it wasn't his fault, and everybody else kind of, it was their fault, but they put it yep. all on his shoulders. And you mentioned that because you have a conversation with the the captain and he's talking about nimitz and he's talking about spruance and he's th and i yeah. love that because i'm a big world war ii history guy so uh -huh. hearing that you know and i'm and i'm familiar with with all of these things i've seen the the documentaries about the indianapolis yep. and everything so when you were talking about that i was like that that is <laughs> i just i think it was a nice touch i you're really like you're it. you're gonna love the rest of the book i know because, I <laughs> I just know it. <laughs> because that's that's how this came to be is there's the, the historical aspect of the indianapolis stretches out just it stretches out far beyond what happened in the water 
So there's all those elements that Quint experienced, especially the aftermath after they got back. And those are going to be discussed not just in the chapter that in chapter 16, but also in uh, other parts in the book. So uh, that's really neat that you zeroed in on that, because that's one of the first things that was probably a biggest brunt of my research. Yeah. Uh, for the first 14 months before I even started writing was the eight books I read on the sinking of the USS Indianapolis and really drilling myself into the mentality of the survivors that every one of those survivors backed Captain McVeigh. And uh, it's very, it was very, it's, it, they, not only did they back Captain McVeigh, they all vouched for his innocence. Mm-hmm. So uh, I'm glad that we can actually incorporate some of those elements into the story. So uh, thank you. And as a Jaws fan, you know, lifelong Jaws fan, we all are. Yeah. How, how did the Jaws obsession and this experience with the Book of Quint recording audiobook project enhance your passion for Jaws? I, I watch Jaws probably once or twice a month on a regular basis and have for as long as I can remember. Yes. Um, with with, with uh, an exception of about six months when my VHS uh, recorder broke. And I didn't okay. have anything. <laughs> but that's going back a ways. For example, the 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 last episode that I listened to with the Quint and and Hooper relationship, and the things that you pointed out there, yep. that really makes me want to go every time. Every new episode, everything you bring up, I go, I gotta go back and watch the movie with that perspective and see it. Because it's interesting to think, was that intentional? Was that a happy accident? Or, you know, and just the idea that here's a movie from what, 1975 that I was, I was two years old when this movie came out. Okay. And to think that a movie of that age can be looked at with new eyes is just incredible. Fantastic. Fantastic. And that's what, that's why Jaws is the gift that keeps on giving. That's right. Right. Like the jelly of the month club. Yeah, it's a, you, you, <laughs> you just can't, you can't, you, you, you watch it once and then you hear something and you go, well, I got to watch it again. And it's not bad because there's always room for Jaws, right? There's yep. always room for Jello. Absolutely. So <laughs> where can listeners find out more about your studio and uh, follow along in your other projects? Yes, thank you for that. Uh, rockvox.com, R-O-C-V-O-X.com. We're in Rochester, New York. It's a purpose-built podcast studio that um, we, we opened in 2018, and we were the first ones pretty much in this part of the state to mm-hmm. create a podcast studio and uh you know building on my my background in filmmaking and radio and stuff and uh, we have a lot of podcasts that you can find on all of the various platforms and if you do a search for Ro- uh, rockvox podcast network you'll see all the different shows that we have and uh, we can also help people remotely if you're you know in Kansas and you want to do a podcast you can reach out and we can we can get you going on that that's excellent. Yes, you can. I'm going to put links for Rockvox and for to reach out to Scott Fitzgerald in the description of this episode and any podcast platform that you're listening on. So uh, you can reach out and contact him and start your own Obsession web uh, podcast and see where that takes you. Yeah, like the so, never-ending story obsession. Yes, the never-ending story. <laughs> Let's get them all out there. The Big Trouble in Little China obsession. <laughs> So thank you very much, Scott Fitzgerald. We look forward to the next episode. We're going to hear the audiobook version of Chapter 16 and 17. It would not have been possible without your contribution here. Thank you very much. Absolutely my honor. Looking forward oh. to it. Okay, Scott. We'll talk to you later. Show me the way to go home. I'm tired. I want to go to bed. I had a little think about it all.
So that's the wonderful surprise that we have. Audiobook version, chapter 16 and 17, will be premiered, will be premiered on the next episode of the Jaws Obsession on Friday, September 2nd, 2022. Friday night, uh, Eastern Time. Uh, that's going to be for the um, for our European listeners that will be probably about one or two in the morning for you folks but i wanted to make sure that everybody was able to listen to it and watch jaws and see if you can find the major revelation the movie jaws is copyrighted property of universal studios any references and sampling from the movie jaws in this episode is intended to fall within section 107 of the copyright act copyrighted materials are fairly used for the purposes of criticism comment and reporting and teaching and research Materials used here are protected by the Fair Use Guidelines of Section 107 of the Copyright Act, all rights reserved to the copyright owners. Special thanks to Scott Fitzgerald from Rockbox Recording and Production. Uh, please follow the information below in the description here. And uh, we look forward to listening to the audiobook version of Chapter 16 and 17 in the next episode. This is it, folks. This is Jaws fans coming together to make it happen. Thank you very much for listening. And uh, the next episode comes out in four days. So until then, we hope you enjoy what you hear. And then remember to watch Jaws. And then I'll see you back here uh, one week with episode 38 to go over what we heard with the audiobook version of chapter 16 and 17. Thank you very much, folks. Farewell and adieu and show me the way to go home. <laughs>